Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. In 1918, a year prior to his departure from Vienna to teach at the Bauhaus, Johannes Itten opened the first exhibition of his students' work with the following quote he attributed to Lao Tse. Thirty spokes meet at the hub, but the void within them creates the essence of the wheel. Clay forms pots, but the void within creates the essence of the pot. Walls with windows and doors make the house, but the void within them creates the essence of the house. Fundamentally, the material contains utility. The immaterial contains essence. In our discussion of Adolf Loos back in episode 4, we remarked on how perception of the void within a vessel was central to a shift in Western human character. In Itten, we find further evidence of a schism within what is too often thought of as a unitary modern movement. While some, like Mies and Corbusier, wished to purify and expand the idea of universal space that Western culture had established in the Middle Ages, others, like Loos, Itten, Wright, and later Neutra, underscored in words and works, how the interplay of empty space and the forms that embraced it was essential to the new aesthetic they were striving for. Nor was this branching point in artistic and architectural expression without a greater significance to the culture at large. We recently mentioned the affinity that Itten had for the ideas of Oswald Spengler. He, like many of his students, felt that Western civilization was in the midst of a conclusive transformation. As a group, they were attempting to make a positive contribution to whatever new direction may have been emerging. Now that we have nearly a century's remove from which to observe these events within a preliminary context, we argue that, in looking at the shifts in architectural tides, some sense can be made of what Virginia Woolf called out as a decisive change in human character. We argued that Loos's essay, Ornament and Crime, marked a departure in design culture, but not so much for noting the removal of ornament from utilitarian objects and architecture. Loos pointed to how others, like Vandevelde, had already abandoned ornamentation and saw the trend as a symptom of cultural change. It was almost as if human perception was evolving to experience a new color called depth. And the distance from seeing empty space as a universal entity within which objects are defined along coordinates, to perceiving it as depth in a sculptural sense, is neither small nor casual. 
an awareness of how positive and negative interplay and define each other not only changes how art and architecture are conceived and thought about, it has consequences percolating into many spheres of existence. Consider cultural attitudes. While something like Manifest Destiny was the expansion of an object, an imperial culture, within the presumed empty space of a continent, current ideas of cultural relativism reflect an added dimension of depth, where the alterity of a foreign culture can help place the boundary and character of native practices. Think of how recent advances in neuroscience would have been impossible without this change in perception from space to depth. Much of current research is based on the assumption that consciousness consists of a co-determinate interaction of environment and self. This perspective has replaced the older notion of the individual defined merely by being separate from the space around him. The new theories and discoveries could not have arisen without a paradigmatic shift in our understanding of void. The way in which a culture thinks of space and mathematics will not just color and condition its perceptions, but determine its possible forms. Spengler took this very much to heart. He argued that the prime symbol characteristic of Western, or what he called Faustian civilization, was that of infinite space. Classical Mediterranean, or Apollonian, civilization had its symbol in the embodied unity of the column. Taking after Nietzsche, he claimed that Western fascination with the classical was due to their respective essences as systems being so opposite. The Faustian was historical, abstract, universal and unbounded, whereas the Apollonian was concrete, localized, and finite. To better illustrate this difference through a mathematical example, let us look at differing perceptions of the Pythagorean theorem. The classical world did not think of it as we are taught in school. Our reflexively wrote expression of a squared plus b squared equals c squared employs a sense of plane and coordinate that would be completely alien to the theorem's original developers. The classical philosophers understood the calculation of right triangles as a physical composition of squares with edges equal to the sides of the triangle whose areas in whole numbers had a fixed harmonic ratio. To make these contrasts even simpler, the understanding of how clay forms a pot, which Itten chose to frame his students' art with, proves surprisingly instructive. The Apollonian conception of the pot would be that of embodied form. If one were to go so far as to adhere to Plato and Socrates's famously impious idealizing, 
it would be a single image reflection of the perfect pot. That Plato sought to create a perfect city-state, not to evangelize to the entire world, is telling. Even this attempt within the classical to universalize produced remarkably local results. The Faustian understanding of the clay pot would take a step away from classical conservatism. Rather than hold up an unchanging and ideal image for an object, Western culture favored abstraction. The move is one that goes from idealized form to ideally executed function, so that the pot is defined not by the character of its form, but by the fact that it holds water. It was also this distancing from classical understanding that allowed for the vast progress and innovations that the Faustian system accomplished. In classical religion, the emphasis was on ritual practice. Your religion was what you did. After the onset of Christianity, the stress was on what you believed, and new practices oscillated wildly, often leading to controversy and conflict. With ideas of an object remitting not to a belief in form, but to belief in principle, and therefore to a focus on performance, the object would become released and could now change to suit any demand. By the dawn of the 20th century, however, the Faustian world system was beginning to show signs of wear. In the field of architecture, this was perceptible in Mutasius's call for a return to form. In episodes 5, 6, and 7, we examined how he declared that functional innovation had reached a point of saturation. But where the Werkbund had pushed for the radical reassessment of evolved form, Itten was putting it into practice, working with the students at the Bauhaus to discover how this fresh and higher sense of form should be developed and used to create. On a nearly instinctive level, previous centuries reacted to the hyper-rationalization of function by revisiting classical forms with increased vigor. The scientific revolution was cresting as Renaissance and Baroque enthusiasms played themselves out like a plant going to seed. Loos had commented on how art and science, once united, had become estranged. While science dwelled on function, art looked to the classical past for inspiration, from the purest neoclassical revivals of Ledoux and Boulet in France or Weimar classicism to the eclectic reinterpretation of classical tropes in the late 19th century. At the onset of the Faustian system, the Gothic cathedral had arisen as a union of function and form, art and science. Indeed, from the fall of Rome to the rise of modernism, the unity that was Gothic presented Europe's only non-classicizing period style. 
And it was this kind of unity that Grotius was also seeking to recover. That of a world system that has not yet developed enough to spin off into specialized derivatives. Instead, the cultural force felt as a single driving zeitgeist would sweep along those who perceived it. What Gropius had presented in his manifesto as a future faith was what Itten ardently hoped would be the birth of a new culture, a new world system. If true, this would mean the dawn of a new mathematic expressed in a characteristic prime symbol that might guide and shape a new art and architecture. The return to formal concerns was a symptom of this search for cultural momentum. There was, however, unanimity on, if nothing else, the conviction that the earlier drive to re-examine classical forms was a dead end. If people rightly sensed that the Faustian was dying, it was too easy a solution to revive the Apollonian corpse. Zeitgeist had to be found elsewhere. While in retrospect, both Loos and Wright expressed this primal idea in their executed work, and Loos was inviting its definition in ornament and crime, neither of them had described the new force with any real precision. It took someone coming in from the outside to bring some specificity to this spirit that the Expressionists had struggled to articulate and the architects to manifest. Evinced in Itten's quote from Lautze, it is at the interface of vessel and void that an object's essence is created. If the Western world was slowly entering the springtime of a system, it could even be argued that this might be its prime symbol, the vessel. Actively co-defined by the void that envelops it. This vessel is also a pole star to help us navigate from architecture's past into its future. By putting it and other such symbols to work for us, we can better understand what belongs to the Faustian and what is beyond it. The analysis of these prime symbols sheds light on a brand of modernism altogether different to the one that, say, Amis would take. His effort was primarily to actualize, and hence to both perpetuate and preserve the Faustian, rather than to break new ground. His devotion to the ideas of Thomas Aquinas, and his insistence on understanding and projecting space as infinite and universal, gave his forms the character of intersecting coordinates. His was the sublime essence of the infinite rather than the singular expression of individualized character. And so the prime symbol of the vessel 
encourages an active conversation between two antipodes, object and space. Their interplay defines the realms of life and action, which is exactly the framework Itten used when teaching design principles. While much historical work focuses on Itten's diagramming of old master paintings, looking for an underlying geometry to compositional strategies, he himself considered this a sidebar to his main pedagogical concepts. In 1964, he noted that the various Bauhaus books were published without my collaboration. Unfortunately, the comments on the illustrations from my basic course are often misleading or incomplete. He then presented his own overview of what his Bauhaus teaching actually entailed. Itten developed a system of formal contrasts. Departing from analysis by calculation or dissection, he sought to analyze synthetic qualities. The foundation of my design teaching was the general theory of contrast. Light and dark, material and texture studies, form and color theory, rhythm and expressive forms were discussed and presented in their contrasting effects. Finding and enumerating the various possibilities of contrast was always one of the most exciting lessons because the students realized that a whole new world was opening up for them. Such contrasts are large, small, long, short, broad, narrow, thick, thin, black, white, much, little, straight, bent, pointed, blunt, horizontal, vertical, diagonal, circular, high, low, plain, line, plain, volume, line, volume, smooth, rough, hard, soft, still, moving, light, heavy, transparent, opaque, steady, intermittent, fluid, solid, sweet, sour, strong, weak, loud, soft, plus the seven color contrasts. All these contrasts had to be worked out singly and in combinations. Here we find an artistic parallel to one of the most significant developments in post-Faustian mathematics, multivalent logic concerned with spectra between one and zero, or the area between true and false, illuminates the world that lives between contrasts. Itten was, like Leibniz, convinced that polar opposites were the foundation of reality, but that life took place in their infinite interactivity. It was these very concepts of opposite and spectra that formed the basis for his color space analysis. Defining three primary colors was only a starting point. It was the frame within which creation would happen. 
This is in marked contrast to the ideas of Kandinsky, a Bauhaus professor who would, in part, fill Itten's shoes following his departure. His idea of a universal expression that must be striven for and rooted in fixed forms of the primary colors and the shapes of circle, square, and triangle were firmly entrenched in a Faustian mindset, though his own art was, in many ways, completely novel. Join us as we explore Expressionism's Arctic and Antarctic Poles, next on Lapsus Lima.